Welcome, everyone, uh, to the Atlantic Council uh, for this event on the rise of intra-Asian defense cooperation. Uh, I'm Barry Pavel. I'm the director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security and a senior vice president here. We really think this is an important and interesting topic uh, and certainly a very timely one. We'll, in this event, we'll look at key aspects of intra-Asian defense cooperation, ranging from uh, wide-ranging Japanese efforts uh, with a number of countries, the Philippines and Vietnam, uh, India, Vietnam, uh, Australia, India, Japan, U.S. There's a lot of two, three, and four uh, group pairs uh, that are really engaged in some interesting new and evolving forms of cooperation, uh, in many ways reflecting, I think, uh, multilateral hedging against some of the uncertainties associated with uh, both China's rise and, of course, um, in some cases uh, regarding North Korea. We at the Council certainly have been paying special attention to the latest security developments in Asia. Uh, the Brent Scowcroft Center has held several events on the region's dynamics, ranging from the Asian arms race, China and cybersecurity, the future of Taiwan's defense roles, and more broadly, Atlantic Pacific uh, partnerships. In addition, we've been convening, uh, some of you may know, an Asia Pacific Strategy Task Force under the leadership of Governor John Huntsman, Mr. Victor Chu, and uh, former Prime Minister of Sweden, Carl Bildt, that is looking to develop a, a comprehensive, nonpartisan strategy for the region that is not a U.S. strategy for, but is much more of a multilateral effort with our allies and partners, so stay tuned for more of that later this year. And one of the purposes of that strategy is to help us with our plans for a new Asia-Pacific Center here. At the Atlanta Council, while we have great events like this on Asia, we want a, a focused, coherent uh, set of efforts on, obviously, a region of major geopolitical importance. And one of the lenses of that new plan, new center, will be first to use our strategic foresight capabilities, which is looking long range at key trends, uh, but then looking at the implications of those trends for today's policy and strategy choices. That's number one. And then number two is there's a set of issues that tend not to get uh, discussed in forums like this, especially in Washington, and those include uh, disruptive technologies, uh, cyberspace, food, water, energy nexus, and some issues that we think are going to get more and more important in the 2020s. So that's just a little preview of, um, of what's to come. Without question regarding today's topic, there's a, there's a trend of uh, very significant increases in Asian defense spending, as well as concomitant intra-Asian defense cooperation. Uh, many different statistics put uh, spending on a par with North America, uh, and certainly that we see other new dynamics that are that are pushing this forward. And I'm really looking forward to hearing the panel's uh, views on these new dynamics, including China's uh, continuing growth in power, uh, the recent launch uh, of the North Korean ballistic missiles, three of which landed within 200 miles of Japan's coastline in its EEZ. These are really some urgent security challenges, not just for Japan and South Korea and the region, but the Trump administration is certainly uh, focused on this already. And this, must, this, this uh, issue and challenge will certainly constitute one of the first major issues that the Trump administration will uh, have to confront. And we saw the news this morning of the first elements of the THAAD system being deployed uh, in South Korea in response to just this latest round of, um, of tests. So this is a fast-moving space. And again, using foresight, uh, the trends are not favorable. The status quo on things like North Korea 
is not uh, is not something that 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 we can hold. So we need to get some new approaches together, and perhaps some of this intra-Asian defense cooperation might relate uh, to to what we've just talked about. Uh, we saw the very first country that new Secretary of Defense Mattis visited globally was South Korea, uh, and then Japan. I think this reflects again the uh, in, the very very high importance that uh, the United States continues to place on its alliances in, in Asia in, in, the, in the midst of a very dynamic set of circumstances, some of which I've just described. Uh, we also have bilateral security cooperation rising, including recent agreements um, decided between Singapore and Vietnam, Japan and Australia, India and South Korea. These are all slightly different, but they all um, sort of help promote the ability of Asian nations to train together to exercise together, to develop uh, new capabilities together, joint R&D, service each other's ships and aircraft, et cetera. So this is a really interesting and somewhat new trend uh, that we are really looking forward to hearing about. And so with that, um, I will turn to our esteemed moderator, Mr. Gordon Lubold, uh, Pentagon reporter of the Wall Street Journal. But first, a reminder, if you're tweeting, uh, please uh, follow the hashtag ACAsia, and we're tweeting from the AC Scowcroft account. Thanks very much. Over to you. Uh, well, it's great to be here. Um, uh, I think what we're going to do is I'm going to uh, introduce very briefly um, each of our panelists, uh, and they're going to speak for a few minutes each. Um, and I have a few questions because I can't help myself, but I'm hoping that you guys have some great questions to, that we can then get to uh, down the line. Um, as we were kind of joking uh, just earlier, like there's nothing happening in this region right now, so I'm not sure what we're going to talk about. Uh, but um, anyway, uh, so uh, to my left is Randy Shriver, um, founding partner of uh, Armitage International. And by the way, I'm going to dispense with like reading any of this stuff because you, you guys all have this. Um, uh, to his left is uh, Lindsey Ford, um, director of Asian Security and Richard, uh, Richard Holbrook Fellow, the Asia Society uh, Policy Institute. To her left is uh, Admiral Mike uh, McDevitt um, from CNA. And to his left is John Watts, the non-resident senior fellow at the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council right here. Um, so I think we'll just go uh, right to left, left to right, whatever it is. You, go, you first, sure. and then uh, we'll jump to it. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you to the uh, Atlantic Council for the invitation. Um, I think what I'll do is, is sort of stick to the more narrow topic that was advertised, the intra-Asia defense cooperation, and, and from the perspective of the countries, I'm going to talk about Taiwan and People's Republic of China, sort of how they think about defense engagement, military diplomacy, uh, other uh, military and defense activities with other countries in the region, and then certainly be open to discussing uh, any of the topical, timely issues related to cross-strait relations, China, Taiwan, et cetera. So on the, on the topic of defense engagement, um, Taiwan, this could be a pretty short conversation because Taiwan <laughs> is pretty isolated. Uh, that's a product, of course, of Beijing's uh, pressure on other countries to avoid uh, meaningful defense cooperation and military-to-military -military activities. Um, there are a few uh, interesting things that Taiwan does engage in that are are unique, so they have this relationship with Singapore, where Singapore does uh, Air Force training in Taiwan. Um, it turns out Singapore, there's not a lot of real estate there, so you need more space to do your Air Force training, and they've had an arrangement in place for years where they train in Taiwan. 
Um, but that is essentially just letting them use the space. There's not a lot of, there's not joint exercises, there's not a lot of joint activity associated with that training. So that's a, a unique relationship, but it's pretty limited in, in scope. Uh, beyond that, Taiwan really only has track two uh, type defense and security uh, dialogue or track one and a half, uh, since oftentimes their officials are engaged. And then they have this relationship with the United States, which is quite robust in the defense and security area. Um, I'm sure you are familiar with some of the aspects of that, the arms sales security assistance relationship, uh, some of the mill-to-mill -mill activities which are in the press. But let me just say briefly what I think uh, friends in Taiwan are hoping for from this administration and that would be to expand really in each of these areas where we do cooperate in the defense and security area. On security assistance, arms sales, I think there's a lot of interest in moving forward on the uh, in indigenous uh, submarine program, which would involve U.S. assistance through our defense industry. Um, there's open talk about a next generation fighter, um, particularly the F-35B, the VSTAL uh, variant, because of the ballistic missile threat that they face and their airfields and aircraft would face. It seems like a very reasonable thing to be interested in. I'm not sure how the Trump administration would view that request, but uh, it's, it's certainly a reasonable thing given the threat they're facing, uh, as well as uh, expanding in, in their missile and air defense, uh, uh, cooperation with the United States, uh, as well as other areas. But those are the, the big areas would be the, the uh, uh, indigenous submarine program, next generation fighters. Um, they would like to see more enhanced military contact between uniformed military officers. So we often hear they like to have senior military flag officers visit Taiwan. Um, it's not unprecedented, but it still remains pretty rare. Most of our engagement in Taiwan is at a, a 06 or below level. Um, but uh, we do have had, we, sorry, we have had some examples of flag officers uh, engaging in those types of exchanges. Taiwan would certainly like more. Um, they would like to improve the quality of our dialogue, which is more on the operational side. Um, because it's not a, a, an actual alliance and we don't have a diplomatic relationship, there are limitations to how we talk about operational matters. But obviously, we have a law. Taiwan Relations Act, which says our commander in the Pacific must maintain the capacity to re resist force if asked to do so. They have an uh, existential threat in a lot of ways, so it would make sense for us to at least, at a minimum, understand one another, our planning, our intentions. And, and that dialogue has improved over the years. I think our friends in Taiwan would like to see it enhanced even further. Um, Training and exercises is another area. We do some training associated with our foreign military sales. Some of it is quite, uh, quite good, uh, but we don't do joint exercises because of the limitations we, we put in place due to the fact it's not an alliance. So they would like to see that enhanced, and I think uh, there's perhaps some interest in, in, in uh, meeting that interest. Um, ship visits, uh, we, we have not conducted those, but there's some discussion that uh, uh, those could take place. Um, uh, could be uh, very sort of the benign level of ship visits, Naval Academy type ship visits, or hospital ships, or something of that nature. Um, but it's something that, that I think is being looked at and would be of interest uh, for our friends in Taiwan. So this is a very important relationship for them because it's essentially the only one that's substantive and, and consequential on, on the defense and security side. So 
Obviously, given the threat they're facing, they'd like to see that enhanced. Let me shift and talk about China. Um, this is a, a much more interesting topic because it's evolving quite rapidly. If you look back to as recently as 2002, uh, the Chinese PLA did not engage in any joint exercises, joint operations of any kind uh, due to their own self-imposed isolation. Um, fast forward from 2002 to the present, and they've got quite a robust uh, schedule of activities with something like 30 different countries, uh, many of them in Asia, uh, where they are conducting joint exercises of, of various kinds. Uh, so that has changed a great deal. I would say most of it is uh, relatively low level in terms of uh, what they're actually doing in the exercises, the, the activities that they're uh, undertaking. It's not, in most cases, any sort of advanced contingency uh, uh, exercise. The one area, of course, to watch and, and that is of great interest to a lot of people is the, the Russia-China relationship. It's of interest, of course, because of the security assistance aspects, military arms sales aspects. But their joint exercises have gotten uh, more robust and are, are looking as though they're addressing specific contingencies and, and, and uh, really improving in terms of the quality of those exercises. If you read the Chinese white paper, defense white paper, they do identify their most important uh, defense relationships as Russia and the United States, presumably for different reasons. Um, but you certainly hear directly from them their interest in the Russia relationship and what they think that can bring to the PLA. Um, the Chinese do in, engage in arms sales security assistance. I think by the numbers, they're the third largest arms exporter in the world. Uh, however, a large chunk of that, I think I just read that about two-thirds of it is to just three countries, um, Pakistan, Myanmar, and Malaysia, I think. Um, don't quote me on that, because that could be wrong. But I think it's, it's uh, not incredibly diverse. And the vast majority of that is relatively low-end military equipment, uh, rifles, guns, ammunition, some military vehicles. Uh, they have sold some submarines, but not a lot of the higher end things that, that we understand the Chinese to field in their own forces. So security cooperation, arms sales, is a growing part of the Chinese defense engagement, uh, but thus far still remains fairly modest. They, of course, partake in humanitarian uh, activities, disaster relief. Uh, most notably, they were engaged in the, in the search for the downed Malaysian airliner for many months. Uh, so this is a, a growing aspect of PLA defense engagement. Um, and they are very active on the military visits, what, what you might call military diplomacy. Uh, that's probably the, the lead feature of what the PLA does in the region. Um, a lot of that is designed just to uh, exchange views and have a better understanding of uh, how these countries perceive China. Uh, but there's possibility that it could lead to more activities, more exercises, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, they engage in ship visits, both hosting ship visits and visiting other countries, but still at a relatively modest level. Uh, there is one country I didn't mention, which is North Korea, which is kind of an interesting case because it is their only treaty ally but in the region. But the level of military activity uh, between the two sides has gotten to the point where it's pretty modest. 
it's probably more robust than some of our Chinese friends would want us to, to know and think about, um, because there are military officers exchanges, there are active discussions, um, but it's not conducted like a military alliance like you'll hear about from my colleagues on the panel here, uh, the United States, Japan, United States, Korea, Australia alliances, it's, it's nothing uh, like those relationships. Um, I, as I mentioned, the other important relationship beyond Russia is the United States. Um, I feel like I've been watching this iceberg move for a long time. I started in 1994 as the country director in the Office of the Secretary of Defense for China, and things have moved very slowly. But if you like the iceberg, if you look away for a little bit and look back, you see movement. And in fact, we are engaged in a number of important activities, confidence-building measures largely aimed at trying to prevent an accident or incident, crisis communication um, uh, preparations. Um, dialogue on regional security at various levels, some professional military exchanges in functional areas. Uh, so it's grown more active, um, but we are still operating under the National Defense Authorization Act restrictions of 2000, which puts a limit on the types of activities we can engage in, uh, as well as sanctions from the Tiananmen era, era which would prevent any arms sales security assistance uh, etc. So there are limitations to that relationship as well. So with that sort of introduction yeah, of great. Taiwan's point of view, China's point of view on defense engagement, I'll turn it over to my colleagues. Excellent, Randy. Lindsay. Sure, thanks. Um, so talking about Southeast Asia for a few minutes, <laughs> one of the interesting things I think about talking about um, Southeast Asia as opposed to probably some of the other commentary you'll hear is the way that defense relationships have evolved in Southeast Asia is a bit of an anomaly uh, compared to the rest of the region. And um, thus far, the Asia-Pacific region has primarily been very bilateral um, in terms of how uh, countries approach security and defense relationships. Um, and this is a big part of the US model, too, sort of the so-called hub-and-spokes model. Um, in Southeast Asia, I think it's unusual that you see a region in which defense ties um, have actually evolved more on a multilateral basis, and multilateral cooperation has preceded and in some ways exceeded what's happening on the bilateral front. So it's unusual. Um, there are a couple of reasons for this. One, historically, if you think about Southeast Asia, it's kind of been what you might, uh, the battleground, a zone of competition between great powers. Um, and Southeast Asian countries are therefore very reluctant um, to engage in more traditional formal security alliances and things that you might see elsewhere in the region. Um, it's not, it's not, not the most comfortable thing in the world um, because they're very focused on trying to retain a degree of independence and strategic you know, autonomy uh, and space of their own. Um, the second is there are a lot of uh, existing um, disagreements, long-standing historical disputes between Southeast Asian countries. It makes it very challenging on a bilateral basis a lot of times to actually have uh, deeper defense ties when there are a lot of existing political sensitivities. Doing things on a multilateral basis gives you a little bit of space um, and makes that easier. Um, so Southeast Asia, I think really everything that's happened has happened largely through the lens of ASEAN. Um, and 
there wasn't a whole lot going on on the security front up until probably a decade or so ago. Um, and ASEAN decided much more intentionally they wanted to have the idea of a security community. They really wanted to do things on the defense front. And so in the last decade, you've seen um, really some sort of remarkable progress uh, in what's going on in Southeast Asia. There are a few reasons. One, there've been, um, there's been a lot of economic and political development in Southeast Asia. And as countries have advanced economically, it's given them more space to advance militarily as well. Um, so there's frankly just a lot more capacity to do stuff than there used to be previously. Second, sort of the 800 pound gorilla in the room or the region, if you will, is obviously China. Uh, and where for a long time it looked like China was gonna be engaging in a very successful charm offensive in Southeast Asia, in the last several years, you've seen that narrative shift and there are growing concerns in Southeast Asia about a seemingly more assertive, maybe aggressive approach that China seems to be taking, particularly in areas like the South China Sea. Um, this has really compelled some ASEAN nations to think about how can they do more together and how can they also begin to enhance their ties to other countries in the region. What has I think made this practical was the establishment of the ASEAN Defense Ministers Meeting, uh, which met for the first time in 2006. And then the expansion of that, the ASEAN Defense Ministers Meeting Plus, which includes um, non-ASEAN nations like the United States, China, Japan, Korea, others, uh, in 2010. And so what you've seen through the ADMM and the ADMM Plus over the last several years has really been a flourishing of cooperation largely in these, quote, non-traditional areas. Um, so things like humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, military medicine, peacekeeping, counterterrorism cooperation. Um, some people, I think critics may say, uh, this is low-hanging fruit, uh, it's the easy stuff. But the reality is it's let nations that otherwise really would not do anything together on the defense front find areas where they can practically cooperate. And there's been some important initiatives. Um, we've seen things like proposals to establish you know, 365 online intelligence sharing platforms uh, between Southeast Asian countries. You would never have heard of that uh, a couple of decades ago. Things like regional centers for peacekeeping, for demining, for military medicine, intelligence sharing on uh, counterterrorism concerns. Um, more recently, the proposal for an ASEAN militaries ready group. The idea here would be that uh, ASEAN militaries could come together to respond to a natural disaster. Um, this is coming out of the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, um, where you saw such incredible devastation in Southeast Asia, and there was really a recognition that, hey, we needed a lot of outside assistance to be able to respond effectively to this, and we didn't actually have the means ourselves to come together and respond to these kinds of disasters, and we need to do something about that. So the trend lines have been really positive. That being said, there are oftentimes a lot more of these initiatives that exist in theory than perhaps in practice. There are a lot of proposals that are out there. They're very positive, but sometimes they get hung up on the implementation and the details. So I think there are a few challenges remaining. One being ASEAN's having a bit of a um, internal struggle perhaps over their sort of strategic vision, vision the raison d'etre, where are we going, what do, you know, what do we wanna be when we grow up in a sense. Um, and the backdrop for this is obviously the US-China dynamic. Um, and ASEAN trying to find a way to remain autonomous, remain independent uh, in 
kind of hedge between the US and China. Some countries are very diligently trying to hew a middle path. Some countries within ASEAN have more explicitly moved to one side or the other, and it's creating some fissures within the organization, makes it very hard for them to move forward on a consensus basis, which is the whole point of the organization. So it's really slowing things down. Um, the other, and this is related, is there are tremendously different levels of development within uh, Southeast Asia. So you see some countries um, that are very concerned about what we might consider more high-end defense kind of problems. You see other countries in Southeast Asia who this just isn't an, on their radar. It's not something they need to deal with yet. Um, and so it makes it very hard to find things that they can come together on um, and that everybody has an interest and a relatively similar level of development because when they do things like exercises, nobody wants to look like the country that shows up with just one ship that's kind of broken down and rusty, and the other people show up with the shiny new toys that they just got. Uh, so it makes it kind of awkward um, there. And then finally, I would say um, there's been a challenge figuring out um, every country is interested Everybody doesn't need to have its own peacekeeping center. Every country in Southeast Asia doesn't need to have its own regional counterterrorism center. It's not an efficient use of resources, but that's kind of where they are right now. So you just see multiplying uh, centers and multiplying initiatives across Southeast Asia, and at some point, to efficiently use their uh, resources and come up with sort of a more logical, coherent ASEAN approach, they're going to have to figure out how to deconflict. Uh, and right now, nobody really wants to do that because they all kind of want their own programs. Um, and so that's something that I think going forward, they're going to have to have much more intentional conversations about. I'll leave awesome. it there, Gordon. Thanks, Lindsay. Admiral. Uh, thanks, Gordon. Um, thank you to the Atlantic Council for inviting me to uh, participate. I've been given the task of talking about Korea and Japan. Uh, all within less than 10 minutes. So this is going to be wave top level. Uh, like the Secretary of Defense, I think I'll start with South Korea. There's three, three major security-related issues that I think are important. The first is political dysfunction in South Korea. I think all of you are probably aware that uh, the President Park has been impeached this past December, and the Constitutional Court now is is uh, determining if uh, the, the acts of the National Assembly, in fact, uh, are legitimate. And once they do, and everybody suspects that they will find in favor of impeachment, they have 60 days to have a new election. So what does this have to do with security? Well, the, the, the favorite is a gentleman named Moon Jae-un. Uh, and uh, Mr. Moon, uh, has a different slant on some of the issues, security-related issues. First of all, he's made noises that perhaps the current uh, lack of engagement between North and South Korea needs to uh, be uh, reconsidered and has suggested uh, that maybe a return to the sunshine policy of many years ago where South Korea gave a lot and got nothing in return, that he may be interested in doing that again. The second thing he has indicated that he is willing to have second thoughts about the agreement to allow the United States to deploy the THAAD anti-ballistic missile system in South Korea. So that has everybody's attention. And finally, he indicated that he's not very happy with the uh, GSOMIA, the G-S-O-M-I-A, uh, it stands for uh, agreements to share information and um, 
and uh, data, technical data, uh, so that militaries can uh, interoperate among, with each other more effectively. This was a long, big deal, trying to get Japan and Korea to agree to this so that if things like trilateral missile defense, trilateral anti-submarine warfare, all of those things could be executed. And finally, after five years, uh, uh, the agreement was uh, signed uh, by South Korea. Well, unfortunately, he's saying, I'm not so sure about it. There's a, you, there's a very, very uh, active uh, uh, anti-Japanese uh, uh, attitude and feeling in Seoul or in South Korea. And so there's uh, thinking that that may need to be renegotiated again. So potentially, several of these things could all be putting progress that the United States and, and South Korea and Japan had thought they had made it might turn the clock back uh, and set things backwards. So that's, that's a very secure, uh, interesting problem uh, that uh, I think that both the United States and Japan are going to have to face here in the next few months. The second uh, big issue is, of course, uh, Seoul, which has had traditionally had very good relations with China. Not, certainly one reason is that they know China has leverage on North Korea, and, and uh, uh, Seoul's ultimate ambition is reunification. So you need to be on good sides with China. But also, South Korea has had st very strong economic linkages, uh, uh, cultural. Uh, South Korean soap operas are a big deal in China, or at least they have been. Uh, and those sort of things, uh, uh, popular musicians and what have you. The, I can't, what is it, the Jeongnam style or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Kind of, so. of course. Um, my grandkids can do it, or could do it. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, what has happened, once Seoul agreed to the installation of THAAD, China has, has uh, gone ballistic, figuratively, uh, in the sense of saying that that proposes a threat to China as well, because the radar clearly would be able to look into China as well as looking at North Korea, given the, given the, the realities of geography. And so they are doing, doing a full court press, similar to what they did many years ago when the US was uh, planning to walk away from the, the ABM treaty, putting as much pressure as they can on South Korea not to let the THAAD deployment go forward. And how are they putting that pressure on? First of all, some of the most strident rhetoric I've heard out of Beijing in a long time, essentially promising Seoul that what you reap is what you're going to sow. And then what is also happening is uh, all of a sudden, all of the many of these economic and social linkages, tourism and what have you, suddenly it's seen convenient as being, being uh, is paying a big economic penalty, and it continue well is likely to continue to grow as the th as the process goes forward to actually get the th the THAAD into South Korea and then installed and up and running. So, and there's another. So they've been essentially slapping South Korea around a lot on this THAAD thing. And the second thing is in the Yellow Sea. There's a, the, the two exclusive economic zones between South Korea and China overlap. And so there has to be an agreement on where you draw the line, where's the boundary? Because the Yellow Sea is not 400 miles wide. It's a lot shorter than that. So these exclusive economic zones that reach out 200 miles from each coast overlap. Well, China has arbitrarily decided they want to line, draw the line at the line of longitude 124 degrees east which when you draw that down and look at through the Yellow Sea, that gives China about 70% of the Yellow Sea and South Korea uh, 
And they've said, by the way, we don't want you to sail your Navy ships across that line. And every time a ROK Navy ship crosses that line, a PLA destroyer or frigate comes out and shadows them and tells them to get out of our waters. So they're playing hardball with the South Koreans on what should be, or it, which is our international waters. So this, there is a maritime dispute going on there. So that's the second thing. And the third, the third problem is what Victor Chaw has called the demons of history. World, Japan's history with South Korea has come back again and again to frustrate attempts to try to improve the security relationship between uh, Tokyo and, uh, and uh, Seoul or between Tokyo, Washington and Seoul. The ambition for over two decades, is, the US ambition, has been a virtual alliance, trilateral cooperation. And every time progress is made, the demons of history come up again. We thought that much of this was behind us when the uh, 2015 agreement was reached on dealing with the comfort woman issue between Tokyo and Seoul. They had a deal that was, I quote, uh, supposedly final and irrevocable. Well, not so fast. This past December, I'm going to quote from this, South Korean activist stationed a statue of a young woman across from the Japanese consulate in Busan, Korea. The statue has this young woman seated upright in a chair with her hands clasped in her lap she stares intently, solemnly toward the consulate. And this so outraged the Japanese, they withdrew their ambassador from South Korea and took their consul general out of Busan. And it essentially suggests that this final and irrevocable issue of comfort women is likely to come back again and the demons of history will strike and turn the clock backwards once again on, on Japanese and Korean issues. Now a word about North Korea. There's lots of words that we can say about North Korea, but just there's first of all, Kim Jong-un is carefully eliminating all the potential Chinese candidates that they could that China could use to replace him. He just took care of his brother half-brother. He took care of his uncle uh, a couple of years ago. And slowly but surely, anybody in North Korea who has the potential to be somebody who China would say, how, how about if you take over and I'll get rid of this, this wacko, uh, uh, those are being eliminated. As somebody put it, those cards are being removed from China's hands by Kim Jong-un. So that's number one interesting issue. You all heard about the missiles yesterday into the, into the Sea of Japan. One of the things that nobody talks much about is the fact that North Korea is busily building a ballistic missile submarine. Not a big SSBN like the United States and the French and the Germans or the Chinese, I mean, French and the British or the Chinese have, but a, a one that would carry one or two, it's conventionally powered, carry one or two ballistic missiles that could sail around the Sea of Japan and launch a ballistic missile at, uh, at Japan. Well, you say they can already do that. But the difference is this submarine would be launching it from a different spot in the South China, in the Sea of Japan. And therefore, the direction coming in would be very different from where Japan traditionally looks and put, positions its defenses to deal against ballistic missiles. So that's a, that's a big problem. And of course, finally, what are we going to do about the North Korean nuclear threat? Uh, all I can say right now is that it's coming to a head. President Trump's going to have to deal with it. 
and it's probably going to be something that's going to be number one on, on his agenda, I would say, over the next couple, three years to deal with that. So, now, if I have any time left, a quick word about Japan. Uh, I think the biggest news about Japan is they have, is how Mr. Abe has quietly moved the needle toward Japan becoming much more of a normal country in terms of its defense posture. Uh, and so it, we would call security policy reform. In July 2014, the Diet passed the notion of uh, agreeing to uh, the notion of that Japan could exercise the right of collective self-defense. So most Americans, myself included, were delighted because that meant Japan could help defend the United States and U.S. forces as opposed to just being the recipient of U.S. De uh, defense uh, uh, support. But there, there is also written into that the diet reading something called the beyond U.S. option, the cabinet decision. In other words, the use of force and support of a country with which Japan has a close relationship, we're not talking about the United States now, it could be anybody else, opens the possibility of Japan developing future alliances. Well, this is, to me, big news, that Japan would actually have a security alliance with, with let's say, the Australians or the Indians, who they've been talking to for some, some years now in terms of improving security relationships. Well, that is really, when you think about where Japan has been traditionally, that's really moving the needle. And they've also established a National Security Council a couple of years ago. It's uh, well-staffed. It has, uh, uh, it has uh, uniformed officers in there. They've come up with a defense, new gui defense guidelines. And the most significant thing there is, for the first time in all of these many decades that we've had a defense relationship with Japan, we now have a planning entity that in peacetime could do contingency planning. Other than we've never had that before with Japan. So now the US and Japan can actually do contingency planning for things like the Senkakus and what have you. It's called, in a typically Japanese fashion, something you would never suspect, the Allied, the allied Coordination Mechanism. That's what this is. It's a, it's a, it's a combined planning capacity. And so I'm going to, I'm going to stop there. There's, we've probably gone over my time now. But uh, um, Japan is not happy with this on the Senkakus. They want the US to be more excited about the Senkakus. And quite frankly, Washington, both the Obama administration and I suspect maybe the Trump administration, has been pretty laid back about what's going on on the Senkakus. It seems to be under control. The Japanese are very worried that the Chinese are going to continue to ratchet up and challenge they, their claim that their claim is uh, indisputable. Well, China has been proving day in and day out that it is, in fact, in dispute. So that's another one of those. Stay tuned. Awesome, sir. Thank you. John. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to give the Australian perspective. And I think there's kind of a sense, both here and, and in Australia itself, that uh, Australian interests and perspectives are, are kind of obvious or intuitive, and so they don't often get articulated. So all I'm going to do is, is kind of step back a little bit and talk about security cooperation in Asia, but kind of why it's important to, to Australia. So 
It's really hard for me to overstate just how important security cooperation is to Australia's perspective and Australia's approach to um, pursuing its national interests. Um, just from, uh, from you know, some simple crude measures, there's an entire chapter in the recent 2016 Defence White Paper dedicated purely to defence engagement, uh, and it's titled um, Pos uh, Positioning for Tomorrow's Challenges, which kind of tells you about how important it is really uh, to our posture. Uh, and anecdotally, from a personal point of view, I, I think I can't think of a, a PME, a, a professional military um, uh, training activity that I've, I've ever been to where you know a quarter or a third of the participants aren't um, foreign officers involved in it, usually from from Asia and throughout the region. So it's something that that uh, culturally is really ingrained and is really at the heart, I think, of Australia's uh, strategic perspective. Uh, so. Just quickly to kind of step back as, as to why that is, I just want to give some consideration of Australia's uh, perspective and, and place in the world. So it's one of perhaps the most strategically secure countries in the world. Um, from that perspective, you would think that we'd be a pretty passive international act that we can sit back and kind of let the world be and not have to expend a lot of energy or resources in it. And yet we're one of the most active countries. We've been involved in every Western conflict since World War I and really before that, you know, in, in the Boer Wars and, and the Boxer Wars and other things. And that kind of seems um, contradictory. The reason is that Australia's prosperity is really um, dependent on trade and investment, and therefore what happens in the world has a really uh, you know, profound direct interest in Australia's um, you know, security and prosperity. We're in the lucky position that we're in a, in a pretty stable region, uh, and so we're not really worried about a direct assault, or at least you know, not a foreseeable one. Um, but you know, if, if our region becomes destabilised, if the trade routes become disrupted, then our prosperity and our security does become. So it, it, it's kind of um, important for us to be involved proactively, externally, both regionally and globally. And there's sort of a, a bit of a contradiction and balance between regionalist and globalist perspectives of how much we should invest in each of those. Um, so kind of moving on to sort of a bigger picture of Australia as well, we have one of the largest EEZs in the world. We have an entire continent to defend. Um, the trade routes are um, uh, you know, wide ranging all across the world. It's not something that our military can do in and of itself. We have, I think, depending on, on you know, which group is listing it, between the 10th and 15th um, highest spender of defense capability, usually around 12th or 13th and ranked about the same in capability. But when you talk about the actual physical size of the military, it's quite small, particularly for the, you know, the um, range of tasks it has to do over the ge geographic expanse. The standing army is about 60,000. I think the Air Force and Navy are about 15,000 each. It's not large by any standards. Um, and so it's it spread thinly across operational tasks and geographic um, locations. So for the Australian government, security cooperation is really an investment in, in um, it's a force multiplier. It's a way to use the capabilities we have to achieve our ends in the most effective and efficient way possible. Uh, and it's really seen as that. It's an investment. Um, so just to give you an, ex an idea of, of how the government sees security cooperation or defence engagement, um, these are the four objectives that laid out in, in the Defence White Paper. Enhancing ADF capabilities through maintaining access to high-end capabilities and ensuring interoperability with the US and partners. Generating and sustaining Australia's regional and global influence by shaping security outcomes and maintaining status and credibility as a respected and capable security actor. And I think that's a really important part that doesn't get spoken of much. It's not just that we go out and do things or we get involved, but we have to be respected in that role and our capability has to be respected. To generate active and effective security partnerships that enable rapid deployment and effective operations when contingencies do happen. 
uh, and enhancing international security resilience. So when you look at it, it's a pretty effective, robust risk mitigation strategy. It's investing in um, preventing uh, contingencies from happening or, or crises from happening. It's allowing us to respond effectively when they do happen. And it's allowing, um, it, it's meaning the resiliency is there that, that if and when they do happen, they bounce back quicker or there's, there's less of a, uh, an issue to begin with. And Australia really has, um, you know, very broad roles, um, you know, informally in, in terms of responding to crises across the South Pacific and, and the Southeast Asia region. You, you can see that historically. So it's Asia specifically, which is, is the focus of the talk. Uh, I mean, there's pr some pretty obvious reasons that Asia is important to Australia. I mean, there's geographic realities there. Um, with globalisation, anything that happens around the world is going to have an impact on Australia, but, but that impact is going to be a lot more direct and a lot more immediate um, on Australia when it happens in the region. By way of example, uh, the, the 2002 Bali bombings, the more Australians died than local Indonesians in that. So there, there's a very direct role for Australia in protecting its, its global diaspora, which is quite sizable. Australians travel quite a bit, um, live overseas, live in other places. Um, so, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a direct role for Australia in protecting its people, um, but it's also in helping um, others in the region in, in, in terms of um, responding to threats. So terrorism, you know, is rearing its ugly head again in Asia. It's reared its head in, in Australia. It's a much larger and more immediate threat if it's allowed to get a foothold in, in Southeast Asia. So as I mentioned earlier, you, know, you can't really get to the Australian mainland without coming through Southeast Asia, whether it be a, a conventional military force that's, that's directly threatening the homeland or whether it's a, you know, a terrorist group. So the, the, we have a good relationship with our neighbours. The stronger and more stable and more prosperous and more secure they are, the same goes for us, right? So it's, it's in our interest to ensure that their capacity and capability is, is, is as much as we can help them with. Um, so to talk about defence engagement itself, what do we do? I mean, we really, it, it's a full spectrum. I'm going to refer to my notes a little bit, so I, I try not to miss anything. But it's really full spectrum. I'm just going to touch on some of the high points. You can kind of categorise them into training, exercises, basing, information sharing, strategic dialogue, security forums, joint operations, and to a lesser extent, defence materiel. So training and capacity building is, is a really important part uh, of Australia. We do a lot of engagement with um, local countries, as I said, increasing their, their capability, for instance, with counterterrorism, which you know, can see in, in the contributions to the success of Densus 88 in Indonesia and their counterterrorism capabilities, um, but really throughout the, the region. It's not a military-only activity. It's a, it's a whole-of-government thing. The, the Australian Federal Police does a lot of great work in the South Pacific and, and helping other countries. It has to do with aid. It has to do with foreign affairs. It, it's a, it's a whole-of-government activity. But it's also a central part to the operations we do undertake. Um, going back to Vietnam, the, the, uh, the training teams that Australia deployed there you know, were developed specifically for that role and became one of the most distinguished units in the Vietnam War for Australia. Um, it was central to our roles in Afghanistan Iraq, the mentoring um, capabilities in Afghanistan, and even today, you know, some of the uh, retaking of cities in Iraq recently, you know, Australian trainers have been at the forefront of helping that and helping build the capacity there. So it's a, it is a direct operational capability that we deploy. Um, but beyond that, exercising is really important. And, you know, we have a very large country. A lot of it's kind of empty. Um, we have a lot of space for exercises. A lot of our neighbours don't. Uh, and so we use that as, as part of the tool. We do um, you know, large exercises, large complex multinational exercises in all the domains. Um, Talisman Sabre um, is our largest you know, land um, operation. Um, it's, it's supposed to be a joint US-Australian um, 
you know, amphibious exercise. But lately there's been uh, New Zealand and Japanese contingents mm -hmm. and I think you'll see that trend line continue where more and more partners will be asked to be involved and, and be involved in it. And um, exercises like uh, Kakadu and Pitch Black, Pitch Black in particular has become something of a global exercise. It's one of the largest air exercises in the world. And, you know, for a long time we've had um, deployments from, you know, Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore, really all the, the regional air forces. More recently you've seen the UAE contingent um, appearing. There are German and French um, contingents have been involved there. It's really becoming a global air exercise. And similarly with Kakadu, even the countries that can't be involved on a large scale, like um, you know, Vanuatu, Cambodia, East Timor, send naval officers to observe. So um, it, it's really, um, as I said, across the spectrum, across all domains, involving all the regional partners to build capacity as much as we can. Um, we're involved, obviously, in, in external exercises like RIMPAC, um, the firepower defence arrangement, which doesn't get a lot of attention in, in, uh, in DC, but is really important to the region and across the Anglosphere and, and the Commonwealth. Um, so really we're involved in, any, in basically all those forums that we can be. And it, 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 we think it's really important. We're involved in you know, the FPDA exercises like uh, Basama Shield, Basama Padu, Lima, Suman Protector. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, there is multiple multilateral exercises happening on an annual basis, rotating annual basis. Um, we do bilateral exercising with countries like Singapore, with ex-Singaroo. Um, and, and we also, you know, Singapore has a special relationship with us, a very close relationship. One that I'll touch on briefly is basing. It's not something that is a, is a broad capability, but it's a really important one, particularly for a country like Singapore that bases some of its air assets in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, it gives them strategic depth. It gives them the opportunity to exercise there. Uh, and it's something that, 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 while it's not broadly used at the moment, I think is an area for, um, uh, for expansion, which I've, I've written on with other countries, with other small countries that have similar situation where we can, um, can, can help them in, in, in achieving their aims. Um, I'll touch briefly on, on, um, on operations. That kind of strays out of security cooperation per se, but I think that they're intimately linked. Already mentioned the MH370 Malaysia um, search that was, it was a large multilateral exercise Australia was very prominent in. Um, going a little bit further afield, we've had a, um, a surface combatant um, involved in um, security operations in the Persian Gulf and further afield in anti-piracy. We're involved with other regional partners in anti-piracy operations through places like the Malacca Straits on occasion. Again, it, it, it's a really important way to build credibility, to get experience, to build interoperability, build capacity with a, a partner nation and directly contribute to our defence needs. That's a lot of return of investment for you know, one surface combatant for six months. Uh, and I think that's a really important, important aspect. Um, I won't go too much into you know, the, the, the forums and the strategic dialogues. We're involved in all of them, you know, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, the Five Powers Defense Agreement, ADMM Plus. Um, you know, we're really involved in, in all those forums and we have dialogues with most of the countries in the region, obviously very close ones with uh, places like Singapore and Malaysia, which we have uh, increased recently. Um, and we're expanding them to places like um, you know, India and Vietnam, which is new, but you know, I think a very important growth area. Uh, and we've just talked with Indonesia, you know, last week with Jokowi in Sydney um, about increased defence cooperation with Indonesia, which is a really, really important relation. Hard to overstate the importance of that relationship. Um, finally, I'll touch on defence materiel. This is not really a, a big strategic um, security cooperation aspect from Australia. We're much larger net importer than we are an exporter. I think we're the seventh largest importer in the world and something like the 20th exporter. Uh, and really, it happens on a much more ad hoc 
basis where it's individual countries, um, sorry, individual companies going out and selling their wares as opposed to a top-down government strategic approach. But the government has been involved in very important um, uh, you know, um, activities like um, supplying places like Malaysia and, and uh, South Pacific nations with some of our old uh, coastal patrol view, uh, vessels. Um, also helping places like the Philippines buy capabilities like Riverine um, uh, capabilities to, f to undertake uh, counterterrorism operations. So there is, there is opportunities where we have used defense material as an important strategic um, uh, asset, but it's not really, um, it, it's not really a, a key part of our approach. So what are the implications? Look, the, the, the US relationship is and will continue to be the most important central aspect of, of Australian um, strategic perspective and security planning. It, it underpins our security. But beyond that, um, you know, beyond just the, the warm relationship we have with the US, it's because our, our interests align on a lot of areas. Free trade, you know, um, rules-based global order, stable and secure world. And really any country who has similar values, I think Australia is going to be inclined to partner with them to achieve those global aims, non-proliferation, counter-terrorism, anti-piracy, um, transnational crime. These are all things that are of interest to Australia, but also to most of the countries in the region. And Australia is going to look to partner with them in any way they can. We have started um, um, undertaking some small, low-level um, exercises with China. Uh, at the moment, I think that's a growth area. But I don't think there's any country that Australia wouldn't be interested in being involved in because, again, a stable, cooperative, um, secure and prosperous region is in our best interest and in our, in our um, national interest. And we use security cooperation as a really central tenant and it's somewhere we've invested a lot in the past and we'll continue to in, and increase our investment in, in future years. Okay, good. Um, <clears throat> thanks. Uh, I want to uh, not be the guy who doesn't get to the questions in the audience. Although, do, are there questions, by the way? I have a few, but I just... I was in a room full of 700 people one time and asked them to go ask questions, and then nobody had a question. So uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I want to get to a couple quick topical uh, issues. Obviously, we mentioned the THAAD, but this is brand new and fresh, and uh, it has a lot of regional uh, implications um, for everything that everybody's talking about. Um, you know, uh, is it possible? So as everybody knows, like the initial elements of the THAAD have been deployed to uh, South Korea, this is uh, uh, getting China very upset. First of all, do we think that it will go through all the way? Um, second, are, are Beijing's concerns about uh, the THAAD in any way legitimate? Uh, third, is the sign that the U.S. is now deploying it as, uh, in any way a reflection that the U.S. is not going to be able to get Beijing to play ball with uh, Kim Jong-un and get him to kind of tamp it down. So jump in there, anybody. Uh, Randy, Randy, whoever. Sure. Um, well, I, I think Mr. Moon, if he's elected, I think he may find a little more flexibility on Thad. I'm not as optimistic on the Japan relationship, as you mentioned, and I'm not as optimistic on the return of sunshine. But I think I, I would predict it would go through, even if there's a change of government to the opposition. Um, Beijing's concerns, are they legitimate? They are not legitimate in, in military terms, right. but that's not really what they object yeah, to. Exactly. I mean, we can, we've taken briefings and, and all kinds of information to them to explain why this is not a threat to their capabilities and not aimed at them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one ear out the other. What they actually care about is the fact that we have a strong alliance with South Korea and, and a commitment there on the peninsula. 
And this is one more sign of, of our linkage and, and South Korea's, in this case, South Korea's commitment to help us. Um, that's really what they object to. So, and they don't want the prospect for regional, uh, sort of a more integrated approach to regional missile defense. There's, there's elements of this that they don't like, but, but they well understand it doesn't threaten their capability. So there was a third question, but I'll let somebody else pick up on it. Well. Sure, uh, just wondering if the, and anybody can speak about to those other. Oh, if it, we're giving up on the Chinese. On the yeah, like I'll what let, does I'll that let, mean? Yeah, I'll let somebody else. Uh, well, it's not like Beijing was on the on the cusp of suddenly bringing Kim Jong Un to sure. heel and, <laughs> and saying, "Aha, we've solved the nuclear weapon in the delivery system." I mean, and so uh, I think Thad was the next logical step uh, because you know, remember, Thad is focused on dealing with uh, short range and uh, medium range ballistic missiles. It's not intended, nor is it capable of shooting down a uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile. They go too fast. Uh, and it's too fast for the interceptors to work. So, so it's, it's clearly a theater system. It's not a, a ballistic missile defense for the United States. So I think it was the next sensible thing to do once South Korea recognized that uh, the combination of short-range ballistic missiles, which North Korea apparently has lots of, uh, made it with a potential of putting a nuclear weapon on the end of it, suddenly changes the danger from merely a 500-pound warhead to a nuclear weapon. All of a sudden, the ability to be able to engage short-range missiles that can fly into South Korean airspace uh, be, takes on a whole different uh, uh, sense of proportion in terms of the damage it can do to the country. So that's why it's there going right. in, I think. All right. Um, what are the prospects for uh, U.S. Beijing discussions on any number of things? And certainly, some of them are outside of the security realm. But uh, South China Sea is like the one that obviously comes to my mind uh, mostly. What would uh, anybody want to weigh in on what the prospects are, Lindsay, for U.S. Uh, China security? Well, I think first of all, at the at the official level, the military to military engagement level, uh, the uh, the security relationship between China and the United States is as good as it's ever been. We have a whole range of high level contacts that proceed in that have proceeded routinely. We have we have uh, high level uh, uh, Defense Department officials uh, uh, meeting with their Chinese counterparts. We have, we, I assume we will continue to have something like the, where the Secretary of State and Secretary of Treasury, the Security and Economic Dialogue meet with their counterparts in China. So there is a whole range of security-related interactions that have, go, that have been going on and will uh, it potentially continue with China. Uh, obviously, uh, issues such as trade are, looks like it's going to be more of a hot button than it was in, in years gone by. And potentially Taiwan will be more of a of a issue uh, uh, with the Trump administration. So whether all of these things will continue, but right now at the official level, military to military relations are good. Now, when I, when a U.S. officer sits opposite a PLA officer, they both know that they both are building war plans to kick the crap out of each right, other, right. and so they also know that's the reality. 
And so this competition of capabilities exists in parallel with these official dialogues. Right. Well, Lindsay, That's actually, a technical term, by the way. I apologize. <laughs> my, uh, my more specific question about China is one we discussed earlier, which is talk about ASEAN and talk about the, um, you know, from the cheap seats, it looks like some of the nations are hedging their bets when it comes to China. Um, when I was with Secretary Carter at one of those meetings that you referenced, I think, there was a lot of timidity about uh, uh, agreeing on language that would condemn sure. China's thing. So, uh, and so speak to that. Maybe. Sure. Um, so, you know, answering your question, but piggybacking off the last one, the reality is that the conversation between the United States and China on the South China Sea is not actually the most important conversation that ought to be happening on the South China Sea. The most important conversation that ought to be happening on the South China Sea is between the claimants. So mm -hmm. it's between ASEAN and China. I think the challenge of where we are is, um, and we've seen news that just came out very recently that said, we have big announcements and deliverables, and this year, for real, we're going to have a framework for a code of conduct in the South China Sea. I will believe it when I see it. Um, we've been hearing this for quite some time, um, and you know I think that I think that part of the problem is that you see ASEAN countries internally have extreme differences of opinion about how to proceed here. Um, you know, two particular issues at the moment. One is last summer you saw the arbitral tribunal made a ruling in favor of the Philippines on some of its, you know, questions about the South China Sea. People thought this was maybe kind of kind of break open the box a bit on the South China Sea. Uh, but instead, you've seen a Duterte administration that's kind of taken a really different approach toward China. The Philippines was really out in the forefront of pushing uh, on China, and now that's not the case at all. And so I think ASEAN countries and claimants are kind of listing a bit as to how they want to approach it. At the same time, you see some countries, in particular, uh, you know, Cambodia, uh, is not so much hedging as much as they just are kind of agreeing with the Chinese, you know, nearly entirely right now. Um, and so um, I think until one, they figure out you know, ASEAN figures out how to deal with that issue. If you have one country, if one country that just really explicitly is on one side and is not hedging at all, how do you find consensus? And two, who's really maybe the champion uh, of the ASEAN claimants right now to really be pushing that issue? And I'm not sure who that is at the moment. How do they move forward? If I could just quickly, uh, there's you know one kind of uh, region which. You know, it is of lesser significance, but I think quite important to get some attention. That's the, the Indonesian response to, um, you know, the incursions around the Natuna Islands, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a real case study for me for how we should go about it. Because we always say that, you know, we need to be open to bringing China in and, and engaging with them proactively and positively on things like economics. But then, you know, we need to kind of draw a line in the sand. But then we kind of freak out anytime anything economic or, or anything new happens like the you know their uh, recent uh, infrastructure investment bank um, you know but then you know we don't really do anything um, you know particularly full-throated when it comes to drawing lines in the sand either so we kind of hedge between the two now you look at how Indonesia approached that situation and, and they are open to Indonesia to China on an economic basis and work with them cooperatively but on that issue, and they're not a claimant in the South China Seas, but they drew a line in the sand and said, this is our territorial waters and we're not going to back down on it. And we'll, there will be consequences for that action. They stood up to them. They towed fishing boats back across the line. There were some confrontations. And, it, okay, that's not 
it's not an area of high priority to China. It's not something where they're going to really kind of, um, you know, risk international uh, condemnation. But I think that's a really important, um, you know, aspect. And it goes to your point of, you know, talking the talk and, you know, walking the walk, right? We say we want to involve China in, in some aspects positively, but then we, you know, there are some red lines. Well, we need to define those red lines and we need to actually enforce them. But on the flip side, we can't panic and freak out every time China advances somewhere else. You know, if China is involved in humanitarian operations in, I don't know, East Timor or Myanmar or somewhere else, that's a positive thing. That's a good thing. That's them being a responsible actor. We should welcome that in, not freak out that their influence is growing in, you know, our backyard, for instance. So I, I think we need to be a lot, a lot clearer in articulation of what that actually means and then go about actually doing it. Hmm. Interesting. Um, let me uh, jump out here, yeah, and see. Uh, so, good. We got questions. I think we have microphones, though, also. First, and I'll come back to maybe a couple other issues, but please. This, uh, or whoever. Sorry, we'll get you. We'll get you. Hi, uh, my name is Nadia Chao, Washington correspondent for Liberty Times. Uh, I have a question for Randy. Uh, during the Obama administration, uh, I think they prefer uh, incremental and uh, you know st uh, gradual improvement of the relationship with the Taiwan. But under Trump, do you see a different approach, especially you know the rebalance um, policy? I think a lot of time when they talk about military size, they just want Taiwan to be able to defend itself and doesn't really want Taiwan to involve in the regional conflicts or the co collaboration. Um, do you see a different, you know, approach uh, in the future? Thank you. Too soon to tell. The, uh, I, I don't think the Trump administration has fully articulated a view. I don't think we have enough sort of data to be able to say one way or the other, and we certainly don't have people in key positions who would be the uh, formulators, dra uh, implementers of, of such policies. Yep. So uh, just simply too soon to tell. I mean, there are some indications that he himself and people that he's brought in are open to uh, stronger ties with Taiwan, but there's also conflicting data. So I, let's just leave it at uh, watch this space. Yeah, please listen. Uh, Rita Chen from the Central News Agency, Taiwan. I'm sort of following up with Nadia. And Randy, you point out it's like the six, six items from the Taiwanese friends wish list that they maybe would like to engage more in the defense cooperation with the US. Uh, I'm just wondering that how will you suggest your Taiwanese friend to prioritize this, this subject? Because uh, some argument also say that the more low key, the better for the U.S. and Taiwan's engagement, especially in the defense area. How, what, what is your assessment? Well, it's not for me to suggest a prioritization. Taiwan's capable of prioritizing themselves, but I think there are some obvious gaps in, in military capability that are, would be in the form of, of systems, hardware, things that they need to acquire. Um, but beyond that, what I think would help Taiwan's deterrence the most is uh, improve their training, improve their professional competency, and improve their sort of latent interoperability with the United States and demonstrate ability to um, fight effectively with us should it come to that in a contingency. And there's a way, there are ways to do that other than operate like an alliance, which we're sort of prohibited from doing. Um, so I don't know if that's a very good answer to your question, but, um, you know, I think there are some hardware needs, but also, um, becoming a, a more professional, capable military while they're trying to reform. I mean, they're still moving towards in the direction of all voluntary force. They're trying to improve the reserves, which I think is very important. 
but but that's all deterrence is showing real capability and capacity. So is not doing something like a drill as a as an exercise is possible already? Under the guise of training, sure, yeah. Hmm. Yes, sir. Yeah. I, was, <coughs> I still have a follow up uh, for Randy. Uh, you, you were talking about. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Because we, we, we have the same question, yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> you're talking about the, uh, uh, when you talk about the uh, US Taiwan uh, security uh, cooperation, you s s uh, mentioned that uh, the US could assist uh, Taiwan, uh, like in the submarine or uh, next generation of fighter. Do you believe uh, under the Trump administration selling, selling a uh, F-35 would be a feasible option in the near future? Feasible? Well, I, yeah. I, I can't speak for the Trump administration, nor do uh, I know what, what you do this. You, but I think given the threat that, that Taiwan faces, the rapid buildup opposite Taiwan, particularly in ballistic and cruise missiles, I understand completely why Taiwan would be interested in this system, and I understand why a reasonable person would look at the U.S. law and say we're obliged to make available to Taiwan defensive systems for their self-defense, why one could reach the conclusion that that falls into that category. See, the other way you should ask that question is can Taiwan afford to buy those airplanes? That's I don't think so. Okay. Not without a huge increase in the defense budget because so much of the defense budget is going toward uh, moving toward an all-volunteer force. And as, as the United States has learned, all volunteer forces, the, the personnel costs and associated uh, support costs that are enormously expensive. If I could just kind of broaden it out from Taiwan specifically, I understand the, the importance of the US-Taiwan relationship. I think one of the things we haven't really maybe brought up here, but I think is, is really significant and doesn't get enough attention, is the intra-Asian cooperation amongst themselves, right? So you have Indonesia's just bought a couple of uh, submarines that have been built in South Korea, for instance. Um, the Malaysian Navy's just got some capability from, from China. Um, uh, you know, there's Taiwanese um, uh, armored vehicles coming from Singapore. I think this, you know, intra-Asian cooperation, I think we need to move the thinking beyond just that hub-and-spoke U.S. perspective and the U.S. at the centre of it and start thinking and talking about how do Asian countries work together on all levels across that spectrum um, to support each other and to, to achieve their mutual goals, which is a, a stable and secure and prosperous Southeast Asia or, you know, Asian region um, writ large. Um, sorry, I fall back in, you know, of tendencies sometimes. Um, but, it, you know, I think that's a really important aspect. So the question shouldn't just be what capabilities can we derive from the U.S. It's what capabilities, you know, can come from internally. And obviously there was the high-profile uh, submarine uh, bid in Australia with Japan, which, which ultimately didn't go through. But there is some high-end capabilities being built in Asia itself. And I think that needs to be given consideration of what capabilities can be sourced from within the region. Yeah, and nobody how does will that sell increase? them to Taiwan. Right. But I think, you know, in terms of talking the discussion uh, more broadly, I think that's, a, that's an important aspect. If I could just jump in, though, yeah, kind of implicit in some of this is the Trump administration's policy in the region. And we don't know. And to your point, like, the, there are no bodies there to help inform this. Uh, you know, uh, Secretary Mattis traveled to the region to kind of reassure everybody. But what are the perils of kind of this kind of limbo land that we're probably going to be approaching with U.S. policy with regard to the region 
which may unfold here for some months? What are, the, what are those perils to anybody? Well, the three of us have all served at one stage or another in OSD. I, I left before there was a transition, but it's not like the building's empty. Right. The Pentagon is full of people. You just don't, you just don't have uh, senior or even mid-level political appointees, but there are some people there doing the job. Is it not, not as bad as it may seem? Good. Well, I, this is continuity, not necessarily in, uh, instituting new policy approaches. Right. I, I mean, I think, I think thus far we have seen, and you saw on the trip that Secretary Mattis made out to the region, I think he hit the right notes uh, in terms of reaffirming uh, things you know, that he needed to say. Um, and so, yes, there is a bit of wait and see. Um, about what will happen, and certainly I think were you to see a retrenchment from the region, there would be deep concern uh, on, the part, on the part of allies and partners. Um, for my part, what I would be very interested uh, in seeing, and we'll see how this unfolds over the coming months, is how do we not only, um, I guess, continue and reaffirm what's already in place, but how do we make momentum in continuing to move forward? Um, and then I guess the last thing that I would say, building on the earlier point, is the point of today's discussion is intra-Asian cooperation. Right. And so I, I think I would really encourage countries in the region. Um, you saw Ash Carter talk about a principled security network. If that's what we're aiming towards, it shouldn't only be about what is the United States going to do to further that goal, but it ought to be about what role do all of the countries in the region play uh, in furthering that as well. I mean, one of the problems is we, we, we've done one big thing, and, and everything else sort of looks like continuity but uncertainty. We pulled out a TPP and killed that. Thank you, Thank you. President Trump. Thank you, Mrs. Clinton. Everybody had a hand in that. Um, so that is viewed unfavorably in the region. Um, I think even the Chinese, it's got them worried because they're more comfortable with a trajectory that they know than one that they don't. So. Absent, you asked about the perils. I mean, it's there. There is some danger in just this continuing uncertainty and anxiety, and how countries might respond. Um, but there's plenty of time to get people in place and to sort of address this. I mean, you know, three and a half years from now, we may forget that it took, you know, till June rather than till May to get an assistant secretary for this or that. Sure. So they, they can get this done. Um, but it would be nice to see some deputies selected pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, of course, we're looking at it so closely, but uh, right, I just think it, it occurs to me that the answer to the region and to the nations there will be maybe the U.S. is retrenching or rethinking its engagement as, you know, there's no existent policy. Well, the, you can bet on one thing. Whatever the policy is, it won't be called pivot or rebound. Yeah, right, right, right. I think we, that is the same thing here. What do we got? Uh, this gentleman, and then we can go to the back guy. Where are you at? Yeah. Uh, Lee Boliu, Voice of America. Um, I have a question for, a uh, same question for Lindsay and for John, please. Um, that is about the possibility of Indonesia and Australia. They were talking uh, earlier about joint exercise in the South China Sea. Now they, okay, <laughs> that's off. So can you please tell me why there was a discussion to begin with between these two nations uh, with the possibility of holding a joint military exit, uh, no, the joint patrol in the South China Sea, and why it's off now, or seem to be that way? I, I mean, I, I guess I can 
speak broadly first, and, and John, I'll turn to you because you probably can speak more authoritatively on this than me, but um, I mean, look, Indonesians, I think there's been some concern about activity around the Natunas, uh, as was mentioned earlier, um, and, what that, and what that means. So, you know, one of the natural responses to that is how can we um, sort of bolster um, our presence by working together with other partners, and Australia would, would obviously be one of those. Now, clearly, over the last week, we saw some mixed messaging on what exactly was said, wasn't said, was planned, wasn't planned. Mm. Um, so I'll... So, I mean, I think, um, look, a Asia is a complex place, right? You know, we like to, to come up with very simple, straightforward, black and white understandings, but, you know, the region is nuanced, it's complex, and, and, and not as simple... Uh, you know, as a quick bumper sticker. Um, Australia does not take a position on um, the sovereignty of any particular set of islands, as I understand it, um, but it believes strongly in, again, um, you, know, res you know, clear um, respect for um, the law of the seas and, and you know, uh, a rules-based global order, and it will do, uh, it'll undertake activities to reinforce um, that throughout the region. So um, it, it is concerned, and this is not, you know, China specifically, I think it's concerned by any country that is being too assertive in, in trying to claim, um, you know, areas that, that don't neatly fit under the, um, uh, you know, the law of the seas uh, definitions and, and trying to push those boundaries and it, and it will contribute towards that. Now, I, I personally think that, you know, there's been a long debate in Australia about, you know, whether it's possible to have it both ways, to have a, you know, a good economic relationship with China and a security one with the US. Mm -hmm. I personally think that's overblown, right? I, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I, you know, I think it is far more nuanced and it's far more complex. But Australia does have to worry about you know, balancing the relationships. It doesn't want to get offside with China. It doesn't see China as an adversary. Um, but at the same time, it wants the region to respect the rules and for all parties to play by those rules. So it will contribute to those without escalating or doing anything too confrontational. It will help its partners in trying to define and, and reinforce um, the rules of the region of the, and of the globe. Good. Uh, why don't we couple these next two questions if we can, or just because we're getting close to time. Uh, Pinil from China Ustani. I have a question for Mac and uh, one question for Randy. Uh, uh, United States has uh, accepted facade. United States also uh, said that um, the main uh, strategic weapons uh, may go to the South Korea. Strategic weapons. And Admiral uh, um, Harry Harris has said that maybe. Um, South Korea can harbor the DDG 1,000 in South Korea. So uh, in your opinion, what kind of uh, strategic weapons may we uh, foresee in the next uh, stage in, uh, for United States to deploy in South Korea? And for Randy, uh, you know, uh, for this dialogue, I think um, India is not uh, mentioned. In uh, Obama administration, India has become the non lateral member uh, defense partnership of the uh, United States. So uh, in your judge, uh, what's uh, Secretary Mali's and uh, Donald Trump's uh, position in India and the United States defense cooperation? Thank you. Okay. Um, maybe, uh, since he had two, maybe we just yeah, try to answer this concisely if you can. For Strategic weapons? Do you mean nuclear weapons? If you mean nuclear weapons, uh, I don't. I have no idea whether the United States is 
considering reintroducing uh, nuclear bombs to South Korea. I think that would be a terrible mistake, but it's possible, I suppose. But uh, if you're talking about the new DDG-1000, that ship, Zumwalt, that, it, it's got so much new technology on it, the Navy's still trying to figure out to make sure it can work. Got stuck in the Panama Canal. Uh, and once you have a brand new ship that has all kinds of new technology from the engines to the, to the radar and everything else, the last thing you do with it is send it 10,000 miles away where all of the technical representatives that can fix things are still in the United States. <laughs> And so I don't. I wouldn't hold my breath, is what I'm telling you. I would just to comment on on your first answer, Admiral. I would make a distinction between putting nuclear weapons back on the Korean Peninsula Pressure. and demonstrating oh, oh, yes. your deterrent That's, capability. Uh, yeah, yes, 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 yes. Um, because I think you know flying. Absolutely, no, no. B2s, flying, flying bombers over there. Yeah. And that's cool, right? That's, that's <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, on on India. Uh, Again, sort of like a broken record. I don't think we, we know much. I think the Obama administration deserves great credit and Secretary Carter personally. I don't know how well it's known how much time he spent on India. It was a remarkable. Lot. A lot Mark said somebody who wasn't working on India in the, <laughs> in the Asia Pacific Bureau. Um, he, he spent a remarkable amount of time and that's really what's required in that relationship. So I, I suspect Secretary Mattis has shown he has a very traditional view of security alliances, relationships, and I suspect he would want to continue the good work that's already been done. It'll be a matter of competing priorities because Secretary Carter got up every morning and thought about India first, last only, at least that's what the Indians were convinced of. But it was pretty close. He spent a lot of time on it. So whether or not Secretary Mattis can commit that much time, I'm not sure. Okay, there, uh, there was one other question we can get to. I'm curious if, um, in terms of intra-cooperation if terrorism, uh, if what everybody thinks about terrorism kind of bringing folks together and particularly ISIS, which is a threat in the region. Can I, can I just say, I think this is, you know, talking earlier about how do we engage China proactively, I think this is an area of growth that really hasn't got enough attention yet. I mean, you know, you had ISIS, um, you know, make declarations against China recently. They have had to deal with uh, you know, terrorist attacks for some time. We don't pay a lot of attention to it. Right. Some of them might be overblown. We don't always know the full details. But I mean, that's, that's an area where it is a common good across the region. And I think that there is a, um, a ticking time bomb in Western China that, 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 you know, could, you know, if we ignore it too long, could then become, you know, the source of, of problems for the entire region later on. So there is already a relatively mature relationship throughout the region in terms of cooperation on counterterrorism. It is something that's, that's important to everyone there. Right. Um, it, it's Nobody's something against fighting terrorism. No, oh, hold on. It, it'll never go away. <laughs> okay. right. Hold on. <laughs> Having pushed this rock up the hill. Right. Uh, Right, exactly. Many times. The problem with doing counterterrorism work with the Chinese is it doesn't take very long before you get into a real gray, blurry area about who is a terrorist in, right. in Xinjiang in sure. Western China. And uh, we did in 2002 declare ETEM a terrorist organization. Mm -hmm. And for that, what we got in return was repeated requests to uh, designate other groups in Xinjiang in particular who were not terrorists. They were activists who were seeking sure. greater freedoms and greater autonomy and so on and so forth. So uh, this is also, you know, the Chinese 
helped form the, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, mm -hmm. uh, nominally to fight terrorism, and then they invite Ahmadinejad to attend and speak. And so I, I think, yes, there are some overlapping shared interests, but I'm not prepared to say fully that we share the same view and have the same objectives where this is concerned. I, I, I strayed there. I mean, in yeah. Southeast Asia, across the the, the current right. counterterrorism you know, is pretty mature. Um, and, and you're right. You know, it's a complex, nuanced situation. I'm not saying it's, it's straightforward, but I think there's areas for cooperation we can expand. There's a certain irony when the Bush George W. Bush administration, the Southeast Asians, all they did was complain about all the United States wants to do is talk about terrorism. Uh, and so there were lots of institutional pieces put in place. I have no idea whether those institutional pieces re exist they, today. They do. Uh, I mean, my personal opinion is this is actually a, an area where if, if I was going to advise the incoming administration, I would say, you know, there's, there's the opportunity to make, you know, more progress and, and deeper cooperation here because there are deep concerns, particularly in Southeast, Southeast Asia, um, about the potential for, you know, foreign, for, foreign fighter flows and yeah. as you have people potentially coming Especially, back. Yeah. from Iraq and Syria or not going anymore and therefore staying at home and potentially launching more attacks at home, that that's a real deep concern. Um, and there are institutional programs and initiatives and things started under the Bush administration that still exist um, where, you could, where you could do more. I do think that one of the challenges in particular in Southeast Asia is going to be, um, and I was there last week, the, the, some of the narrative that is out there right now on how, um, you know, terrorism is being discussed in the, in the narrative in the United States, um, and in particular some of the immigration debates happening right now are, are not playing that well hmm. in the region. And so we're going to have to be very careful about how we talk about this issue to make sure that you don't actually drive away moderate Muslim nations. I mean, Asia actually has more Muslims <laughs> Uh, than any other region of the world. Yeah. Two-thirds of the world's Muslims, Indonesia and India, two you know, nations with the most That's Muslims. Um, so these ought to be some of our closest partners, and we're going to have to make sure that, that we don't frame it in a way that really makes it hard to cooperate. If I can make a last comment. I do want to be careful with terrorism in Southeast Asia anyway, because it can be overblown and, and hyperbolic, because we don't talk about Southeast Asia a lot. And so when it's only talking about terrorism, it gets a sense that it's a really huge problem there. I mean, you know, the number of Indonesians who've traveled to fight with ISIS is less than Australia. Right. right, and this is the largest, you know, Muslim country in the world. So it is an issue, and it's an area for cooperation. But I find it really frustrating when that becomes the only way we talk about Southeast Asia is about terrorism. Sure, sure. When relative to other areas, it's not actually as big a problem as, as you know, in other areas. Good. Um, uh, should have asked that question earlier on because it's obviously spirited uh, uh, <laughs> views. Anyway, thank you very much, everybody, for coming. Thank you to our panelists, and have a great afternoon.